Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Dr. Debrea Watson. Dr. Watson describes herself as a mother of two adult children, a filmmaker, poet, short story writer, essayist, editor, and retired higher education administrator. She enjoys cooking and entertaining in her West Bloomfield, Michigan home. She holds a doctorate in adult and higher education from Capella University, a master's of arts in adult and higher education from Moorhead State University, and a master of science in general administration from Central Michigan University. She's been invited to speak at numerous workshops and conventions throughout the United States and Canada on a variety of topics, including intergenerational communication. As a youth, she spent 12 years in foster care and shares her personal foster care journey in her memoir, If Not for Dreams, Memories of a Foster Child. Her writing is also included in the anthology, Growing Up, in the care of strangers. She's also penned a novella, Dancing Under the Same Moon, and has been featured in several other publications. As a contemporary abstract artist, Debrea takes herself out of the way and trusts the creative process. Her work has been shown at the Detroit Artist Market, National Conference of Artist Gallery, Joe's Gallery, and the Juanita Ford Gallery along with the Charles H. Wright African American Museum. Since her retirement, she has ventured into a new genre, filmmaking. Her production company, Real Women Speak, is dedicated to impacting the lives of women through visual media. Collective Voices, Wisdom of Our Lesbian Elders, was her first independent film. Dr. Watson says that whether it's in her writing, art or film, she has a deep need to recollect traditions and generational legacy. This perhaps comes from listening to stories from her elders, specifically African-American women sitting, laughing, talking on porch steps or around the kitchen table. She has a new film project and is working on a children's book. She has also written a proposal for a book tentatively titled Becoming Our Mothers, an anthology of women authors over 50 who had complex, difficult relationships with their mothers and resolutions. Dr. Watson says, I can be driven or complacent, insecure or egotistical. Like all living creatures, I am passing through stages. I am recovering, discovering, 
and growing. I love that. Dr. Watson, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. How are you today? I'm fine, and thank you for inviting me. I mean, there's so many things as I read about that that I just love. Um, you know, we've no, I don't even know when we've known each other, but it seems like we've known each other forever. I can recall once being at Oakland University and, you know, passing in the hallway, and I'm going like, hmm, I know her, I know her. And before I could put, uh, you know, the name to it, right. I walk into, walk into this room and we're both talking about women. Uh-huh. Um, and it was African American History Month. I mean, you are, to me, you're a Renaissance woman. You are... I mean, you do so many things in the arts. You know more about your time in foster care, but people tend to think of kids in foster care. You know, you always hear the negative stories. But going through that time, you, you know, 12 years in the foster care system, was there something that sort of helped create this artist that you've become? I, I think, uh, you know, I came up in the era during the uh, – 50s and 60s, where children were seen and not heard. And I think art was my escape. Um, I was, needless to say, a troubled child because of uh, what I had been through. And um, I used to get in trouble a lot at school. I mean, I was in a fight almost every day. And I had a principal, uh, Clarice Nancarrow, um, over at at, uh, Nichols Elementary, And um, she used to pull me in her office, and rather than to punish me, or maybe she did think she was punishing me, she would make me read books in the library. And, uh, you know, the Nancy Drew mysteries and what have you. And before I left Nichols, I had read just about every book that was in the library. And then I got bored because even some of them I had read twice, so I started writing my (laughs) own stories. So this was in the fifth and sixth grade that I started writing my own stories, and I would read them to her, and, of course, she would give me praise for reading them. And um, then I was given a a little, I don't know if you remember, the diaries with the little keys (laughs) that you locked. And so that became another uh, means of me writing because I could tell all my secrets and lock them up in this diary. So I think that, my experiences, especially from childhood, is what fueled my creativity, and it just and I've always been a creative person. And you know, when I'm stressed, I paint. Um, you know, uh, it's it's just always been that way. You know, and I've had like experiences with young people who've gone through foster care. I know for uh, one point in time, I had I had worked for organization. And the kids would talk about, you know, having to gather up all of their things, some of them using garbage bags as their suitcases and doing it. Often in these situations, even when they were children or as an adult, they may have gone in troubled, but they came out even more troubled. You came out. um, uh, you, You went through that system and you came out. I mean, I look at what you've accomplished as far as education, that you were in education, when you went into foster care, did you, how, what did you, did you see it as a challenge, did you, as, as something that like this too shall pass, or 
Well, I was seven when I went in, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know. And prior to me going into foster care, I was in a dysfunctional environment. I mean, I I experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse. Um, My mother uh, was a schizophrenic, um, and we were, my brother and I were frequently left unattended. Um, So I I don't remember feeling any particular way about foster care. It was just a passage uh, through. Um, I can say that it's difficult to live with strangers, hence the title of that one book, In the Care of Strangers. And on that cover, I'm glad you mentioned that, because on the cover of that book is uh, pictures of garbage bags, which is how most foster kids transport um, their belongings or either the dollar plaid bags uh, mm-hmm, that you get from mm-hmm. the dollar store, but you don't have suitcases or luggage, you know. Um, and you're constantly um, moving and you're constantly uh, are in an environment of insert- uncertainty. Um, so out of that, I can remember um, that I knew that I wanted something better and that I could do better. And I think my one saving grace is that um, – I always had this curiosity, and I did love school, even though I got in trouble in school. Mm-hmm. I loved, uh, you know, learning. Uh, I got in trouble in school because of teasing what would now be called bullying, um, but I loved to learn. And I think that was my one saving grace, that and the fact that I was blessed with the intellect to deal with um, the subject matters in school in spite of moving around, uh, you know, which is unsettling for a lot of foster kids and why they don't do well because they're constantly moving and um, the school system gives up on them or they give up on the school system. But for me, the school was my saving grace. And so uh, I see that as a difference because my brother went through the system as well. And like so many black males that go through the system, he went from foster care to juvenile to Jackson to an early mm. death. You know, I mean, I, I think that the part when you talk about those, reading those books, because I know as a child, there was a period of time where you know, I often tell people, we didn't realize that we didn't have money. That's why every Saturday we went to the library and got <laughs> yes, <books. yes>, uh. <laughs> But, you know, there, there's a way, though, that, that I always found that, that books were like a saving grace because it kept that imagination going or exactly. helped, me, helped me to know that, you know, I, be, I really believe through books that there is this bigger world out there and that I could see and do anything. Um, do you still love books? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I've been, I actually, I've just finished uh, Know the Mother by Desiree Cooper, um, <laughs> which is a, a collection of flash fiction and short fiction, excellent book. Uh, I'm also reading, Dr. Kofi has a chapter in a book, Black LGBT Health in the United States. And with me, with a healthcare background, I've been uh, delving into that. It's more of a textbook type of uh, reading. And then I'm also reading J.D. Uh, Vance's book, Hillbilly Allergy, which is supposed mm. to tell us why uh, Trump voters voted for Trump. <laughs> Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I'm still trying to understand yeah. that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's going to take a, a whole volume of books, you know, <laughs> before I ever understand that. I mean, you know, because, I mean, really, it is, it's just sort of amazing to me. Do you like to read books, books, or are you one of those people who, you know, now you're doing it all, all on tablets? No, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know if it's my generation or what, but I love to have a book in my hand. Mm-hmm. I love the feeling of books. I have downloaded books on my tablet and all of that, but it doesn't give me the same experience as, um, you know, having a, a hardcover book in my hand. You know, if I if I remember where my bookmarks are, you know, I can mark my page. If not, I'll dog ear it. <laughs> so mm-hmm, I love mm-hmm. I love my uh, hard copies. I'm I'm with you. You know, there's yeah. some that's something about some days. It's like you get that book, you sit there, and it's like a friend. Mm-hmm. Now, you were in foster care for 12 years, so you went in at seven. So you aged out like it. At yeah. The end. At, um, okay. sev- well, 17. I turned 18 uh-huh. that summer. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. How? What was that like? I mean, often I hear, you know, when I've worked with like young people who have done when they aged out, it was sort of like, again, again, feeling like they were being thrown away. It's like, I've been in the system and now you're just done with me and I, I need to figure it out. What was well, it, it like was a conf- you? It was a confusing time for me. Um, I had had five foster care placements. And so the last placement I had been in the longest, uh, I think I went there when I was like 13. And like I said, I aged out of that home. Um, and I was, like I say, always an excellent student, and um, my foster mom, her thing was, you know, you're an attractive young woman, you need to find you a factory worker and get married. <laughs> I wanted to go to college, and mm-hmm. um, so I was working part-time at a restaurant and um, didn't have a clue as to what college was really like, how to apply or anything. I think at the time, even my uh, counselors at school, knowing I was a foster child, they had sort of wrote me off too um, mm-hmm. because the other, uh, my other classmates who were also high-achieving students, you know, they had appointments and there was discussion about what college they were going to and all of that. None of that happened with me. So I independently uh, took my little money from my dishwashing job and applied at various colleges, but unrealistically, I had unrealistic expectations like many of my students do today, um, mm-hmm. applied for colleges in California and, you know, all these exotic places without a clue <laughs> as to how I was going to get there and if I did get there, how I was going to live. Um, so consequently, none of that panned out. And that summer, um, my foster mother told me, she says, when uh, the Children's Aid Society keeps uh, stops the checks, you need to have a plan. And I didn't mm. have one. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought I, to myself, I said, well, I'm, you know, a, a good kid. She's not going to put me out. But she did. <laughs> wow. wow. And, um, and then um, so I did what the kids call now couch surfing. Mm-hmm. I did that. You know, I would go over my friend's house, you know, think of an excuse. I didn't want anybody to know what was going on. My best friend, uh, I didn't even tell her what was going on. And so I would think of an excuse so I could spend the night. And then I would mm-hmm. get up and roam during the day. Um, and I did this for 
all that summer, actually. And then finally, I, um, I had a bad experience with a guy, and um, I called my social worker and told her, you know, the, uh, told him, I'm sorry, the problems I was having. So he arranged for me to uh, stay temporarily at a halfway house. But the halfway house really wasn't designed for people like me. The halfway house was a halfway house for women, um, uh, reentry women, women that had left prison and was coming mm-hmm. back into the community. Um, and but he said this will give you this will keep you off the streets uh, for the remainder of the summer. And uh, that was a, a whole different type of experience. I did have a protector. I had a woman that took me under her wings, and, um, you know, she was the go-to person. So I was sort of protected uh, in terms of the other women um, taking advantage of me. And uh, so when that was up, because it was only temporary, uh, he arranged for me to stay at the uh, YWCA. And... uh, I had a part-time job, and that didn't go well. Um, mm. And so I uh, wound up getting a job, another job. I got pregnant with my son and uh, was homeless again. <laughs> was homeless again. So I called my foster mm-hmm. mother and I asked her, because this, this was over a span of about a year that all of this was going on. And um, I told her, I you know, I asked her, could I come back home temporarily? And she said, temporarily, you can. Um, I didn't tell her I was pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, I had to tell her. And, uh, of course, she wasn't too happy about it because she's a quote-unquote Christian woman. And um, so it was a, a fellow that liked me. Um, we hadn't dated that much or anything, but, you know, I married him because because mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. a safety net for me for me and uh, at the time I thought that that was the wisest thing for me to do and I thought that I could make a go of it. He was a very abusive person, so it was a short-lived uh, marriage, and um, it was really my son that made me think I've got to do something different and I've got to get back in school and you know it's something about having a child that that mm-hmm. all of a sudden that light will come on. Uh, so I sought out community college, and that's where I started, at a community college, Highland Park Community College, which mm-hmm. gave me my first career and uh, enabled me to take care of myself and my son. You know, and, and you know, it's true because often I'll tell people, they say, what was the moment that changed your life? And you're right. It is something about when you find out and you realize it's going to be you take and you have this responsibility for this little person, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's grow up time. Yeah. Um, when you were coming up, um, and I had to, I have a confession to make. Uh, my sister had one of those diaries, and I was constantly looking for hairpins, paper clips, and open it up and read and see what was going on. <laughs> when did when you were in foster care? Or when you started to write the book, did you still have those diaries? And did, when did you start to think that you wanted to tell the story? Oh, that's a good question, Michelle. No, um, the, my, actually my diary was destroyed in my fourth foster home. Um, mm-hmm. I, m- 
that foster mother had a brother um, who was priming me for uh, sexual abuse, um, exposing himself to me and all of that kind of stuff. And I had, I guess I was about 11 or 12, and I had wrote about it in the diary because mm-hmm. uh, he lived upstairs from us. And she would always, whenever she cooked dinner, she would have me take him a plate. And uh, that's when he would do it. And I was afraid to tell her because I I knew she loved him. That was her younger brother, and she loved him. And I was saying she'll blame me, which she did when I finally did, when she finally did find the diary. And so I had wrote in my diary that, um, that he was doing this, and I didn't know what to do. And I had hid my diary behind the radiator, wrapped it up in a pillowcase and hid it behind the radiator. And I don't know if she was, I don't know how she found it, if she was cleaning up my room or whatever, but she found it and read it. And mm-hmm. um, and then she confronted me about it. And, uh, of course, she at, she brought him downstairs and said, she, she says you're doing this. And, of course, he denied it. Of and course. So, then, you know, I became the lion fast heifer, and I got moved as a result of that. And mm-hmm. so, um, and she destroyed the diary. And, uh, but years, for years, probably as an adult, I started journaling. Um, and I kept, you know, the spiral-bound notebooks of because I've always been, had insomnia, and so I would get up in the middle of the night and write whatever I dreamt or whatever was on my mind. And um, and so I kept, I had about, I'd say about 25 of those spiral notebooks through the years where I had wrote in. And uh, when my brother died, I, which was, it was unexpected to me because I didn't know he was sick. And so uh, when he died, it was really crushing to me um, to the point that I went through grief counseling. And I went for grief counseling, but then, of course, in the counseling session, they ask you about your childhood and all of this kind of stuff. And so I was explaining to the woman everything uh, that had gone on. I said, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here because I need to heal from my brother's death. And she said, no, it starts from way back when. And so... um, Somehow we got on the topic of writing. I told her I kept journals, so she asked could she see a couple of them. And when she uh, read them, uh, she said, this is powerful, this is a book, and blah, 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 blah. So so I took them and I put them back in the trunk where I had them and kept them for years. Um, Fast forward 10 years later, we did our first foster care conference at the downtown campus of Wayne County Community College District. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a panel of social workers there, and we also had uh, foster youth uh, more or less giving testimonies. And this young lady got up and told her story, which was my story. Mm-hmm. And And I just... You know, I'm the moderator, but I couldn't keep it together. You know, I just burst out in tears. And then it was a social worker there, a retired social worker there, and she walked up to me and she says, you were one of my girls. And I said, I don't, I don't think so. And she said, yeah, you were. I remember your face. I said, now, after mm-hmm. all these years. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she says, yeah, she said, you were at DJ Healy and you had a little brother. 
and it just blew. So it was such an emotional time for me. And um, so I decided um, that I was going to write something cohesive, pull information out of these journals, and write something for my children so that they would know, they would have a legacy, and they would understand some of the dumb stuff that I had did through the years, Mm -hmm. uh, being the helicopter mom and all of that. And um, so I wrote it, and uh, a friend of mine read it, and she says, you need to get this published. So I hired an agent and went through the traditional publishing, and you know what a headache that is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And received multiple rejection letters or request to rewrite this, you know, jumping through a bunch of hoops. Um, And I was determined, this is where ego comes in, I was determined that I didn't want to self-publish. I wanted a major publisher for my book. And um, so I, um, a major publisher did show interest, but they asked for a complete rewrite. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave me a time frame in which to do it. And I did the complete rewrite, but I wrote me out of the story. It was no longer my story. Mm-hmm. And so then I had to make a decision. Do you want to tell your story or do you want to tell uh, this fictionalized story and get published by this big publisher? So I took a roll of the dice and I decided to tell my story, and I published with an independent publisher, small independent uh, press, mm-hmm. and um, that's how the book came about. Well, you know, I think the part, you know, I can, I can just sort of see how that, how that, that was, and, um, and to have to, you know, when going and doing it and wanting to tell that story, cause I've met people who have done their own memoirs and, you know, go, they take it and they want them to change this and change that to where, like, after a while, it's like, is this my story? And I also recognize how powerful your story in and of itself was. I often tell people, like, I have supported and believed in the Ruth Ellis Center, like, forever. Mm -hmm. But it was a while before I could go in there because... I knew it would remind me of things that I had experienced and seen. Right. And so, I mean, here, even though you had it in, in your journals and you knew it, when you got that book done and it was in your voice, it, did you have, like, flashbacks or, or did you feel like a, a type of catharsis, like, okay, I've done this and now I went through that, so now I can let other people know that you can come through to the other side, that you're not alone. I experienced all of that. Um, when, the, when I actually uh, got the book in hand, I mean, past the galley and everything, the actual publication of the book, when I got it in hand, it was almost like I was ex- afraid to expose myself that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I didn't want it to come across as, and then the other thing is, you know, my agent and I fell out because she wanted me <laughs> to go with the major publisher 
with mm-hmm. the watered-down version because she was saying, well, the problem with you writing a memoir is that mem- people don't buy memoirs unless they're written by someone famous. And so she says you won't be able to get your message out. But if you, you know, go with uh, this major publisher and tell their story, I mean, tell the story like they want to, then if you get a book deal, then maybe you can, you know, manipulate it and, you know, do a second version of it and all that. But everything was a maybe. Um, So we terminated our relationship. Um, But, you know, the book was hard for me. It was a catharsis, but I had so many nightmares um, while I was going through it because uh, it was a lot of stuff bubbling up that I thought I had processed that I had not processed. For example, the... uh, childhood sexual abuse I thought that I was past that but when I wrote that portion in the book it you know I had that fear again I was back in that room um you know the smells were there everything and so it was really um difficult for me to push past that I did but it it took some months um to do that and um, the book has been used as a training tool for the state of Michigan for foster parents, for social workers. Um, I've also done workshops with um, uh, youth uh, with the book. Um, but it, it was difficult to expose, to be that truthful about um, what was going on. And also I have an older sister who I was not raised with. My mother had her at 13, and she was adopted at birth in another state. Um, And we didn't find each other um, until I was 18. Mm. And um, so she she was angry at me for writing the book because it was an embarrassment to her that I had said that, you know, exposed our mother as being negligent and being schizophrenic, um, the fact that I had been raped as a child, all of that, you know, was um, a source of embarrassment for her. And she didn't understand why I was, quote, unquote, putting our business in the street. Mm. So mm. It, was, um, it was difficult initially. Um, but then when I saw the, the, when I started doing the workshops um, and talking about it and seeing the impact that it was having on other people that had, experienced it and then like I said it has even touched people that were not in foster care I had a a, my uh, administrative assistant when I was working uh, was Hispanic and she read the book and she came to me and she told me that she too had experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse and she had never told anybody because she was saying in their community that was just something you didn't talk about and um she decided to tell her brother, to talk to her brother, because it was her father who was the abuser. And she went and told her brother, and it turns out her brother had been abused by their father too. And um, so she talked about what that was, and they were on their journey to healing. And so you never know when you do something the impact that it's going to have. Uh, I, I, I am... I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person, so I pray that what I presented would be of benefit to others 
not that I was just telling a story because everybody has mm-hmm. a story to tell, but that it would have be a benefit and have an impact on someone else in the positive. Oh, wow. I mean, there's so many things that are going through my mind, but as they say, I need to take a pause for the cause. So okay. we're going to take a short break. And um, if you're just joining us, I am speaking with a friend, Dr. Debrea Watson, and we will be right back. You're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Well, we're back with more conversation with today's guest, Dr. Debrea Watson. You know, I was thinking about your book, and um, I have interviewed women, and I helped edit a book. And that part, how you talk about how other family members got upset, mm-hmm. and, I mean, that has always come apart. But the thing that, you know, you were a single mother, I've been a single mother, to my son. I mean, I, he'll still tell you that, you know, you had the rock, mom. You can do, you know, there's always been challenges and do that. But every now and then there have been things to where to have to, to tell him about or, or enlighten him on that part, those parts of your life when there was a struggle. And, you know, and it has made us closer. But there was that part where it was like, you know, you've been that rock. You've been that person you want to show them. And then to have to to hear, and you had a book, you know, say, well, here's this, I'm getting ready to come out with this book, and you're going to learn this about me. What did that, I mean, did it, Did you have, did, how did you prepare them for, prepare them and prepare yourself for the conversations that were going to come out of your book? Well, it was inter- it's interesting that you asked that. Um, under the Freedom of Information Act, I went and got my foster care records, and my son went with me that day to get my foster care records from the Children's Aid Society. And when we, of course, you know, I had to petition for him and fill out all type of paperwork in advance and all of that. So when I went down there and uh, the woman handed me the envelope, well, she was getting ready to hand me the envelope, and she says, "Um, I think that you probably are going to, need some counseling, mm. and um, I said, no, I'm fine, and she, you know, we were like playing tug of war with the envelope. She wouldn't give it to me, and so finally she says, I really think that you will need some counseling, and um, 
And so I said, fine. So when we got in the car, um, I my son was driving, and he had to be about seven, 16 or, well, 17, because he had just recently got his license. And um, so I let him drive because I was anxious to read what was in this envelope because this, you know, tells you about all the home placements. And some of my early placements I really don't, I didn't remember that well. And so as I was reading, I was like, this is not me. She gave, she mixed my record up. This I, this didn't happen to me. And um, so we came on home and I called her and I said, I think, that you might have mixed up my records with someone else. I said, because certainly if some of this had happened to me, I would remember. And I said, I don't remember any of this. And she said, that's why I told you you need to go to counseling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she said, that is your record. And so uh, I still didn't believe her. So I went um, uh, to... I was working at Detroit Receiving Hospital at the time, and one of the things on uh, record was that I had been beaten unconscious and I was treated at Children's Hospital. And so I went and pulled up Children's Hospital records to find me, and there I was, you know, with Mm. the record of the actual case. And I was like, why wouldn't I remember this, you know? And so that started the conversation with my, you know, um, I, I remember I I ordered pizza, and I set the kids down and at the table, and I told them, you know, because they knew I had been in foster care, but they didn't know, for example, um, they didn't know I had been sexually abused as a child because it was always a source of shame for me. So I never told mm-hmm. them. Um, and uh, the other thing, so I, you know, I told them, I said, this is. You know, I laid it out on the table, and I said, this is my life my as a child. And that's when I told them through tears. And, um, you know, as they said last night, we cried together. So we sat there crying. My son didn't cry, but he turned ten shades of red, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get in. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think he has read this book yet. Or if he has, he has not read it from cover to cover because he says too hard. My mm-hmm. daughter has read it. Um, she's introduced me um, at several uh, speaking <laughs> engagements, and I had won an award uh, several years ago, and she was supposed to introduce me, and she cried throughout the whole introduction. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, so, um, so she she has read the book from cover to cover, but I don't think my son at least last time I talked to him because he had uh, one of his girlfriends had read it mm-hmm. and um, she was talking to me about it. And he says, I don't want to, can we change the subject? I don't want to hear that, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's still not ready to deal with it. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you know I, yeah, and it's funny, it's sort of like a protectiveness, mm-hmm. but also, you know, I mean, it's like they, they, don't, they don't want to. Yeah, so that, that's just, wow. Now, I know that, that that's a big part of your writing, but um, you also wrote this book, Dancing Under the Same Moon. Now, you're from, Detroit, you're from up here, and, but this book, it takes place in the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you draw upon to write that? You know, because, I mean, I have tried to write things, and, and, 
in part, you know, like imagining myself being in another place and then having to go there to just sort of see it. But how did you come up with this this whole idea of, about this book and what's the title mean? And, and, and tell me a little bit about Dancing Under the Sun. Under the same moon, rather. Okay. Um, well, how the book came about is I, years ago um, I was a member of the Detroit Storytellers, mm-hmm. and I used to perform a story called Twilight, and it was about this character um, who was a misunderstood child, grew up to be, as a woman, became a root worker, uh, uh, a root working woman, um, which is... Uh, conjuring, and then um, she she gets pregnant, she gives birth, and she dies during birth. Um, mm. Unknowingly, I didn't draw the parallel that I was telling my mother's story, because that's my mother's story. She died wow. during childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so everybody kept asking me to write the story about the child that was born um, during her death because the child lived, but she died during the birth. And so for years I tried to write a story about the child, and I finally wrote the story about the child, and I was dissatisfied with it. So um, you're a writer, so you know sometimes we write something mm-hmm. and we put it away, going to get back to it later. And uh, so a friend of mine kept bugging me about, you didn't even name the baby. What did you know? <laughs> Tell me the story about the baby. And so one in one of my insomnia uh, midnight hours, I got up, and the story wrote itself. I sat at my mm-hmm. kitchen table, and she said, my name is Legacy, and, the, and I wrote the story. And uh, so my friend read it. She said, oh, this is phenomenal. Uh, I was no longer involved with the uh, oral storytelling uh, tradition, so I, I wrote the story and I put it uh, aside with Twilight. So I said, okay, i got two stories, now what to do with, with them? And so then I started writing stories of, the char- of each character. Um, and it started off as four short stories. And... But they were connected, so I said I got to figure out a way to connect these stories, and so then it became Maddie, who is a character in the book. She became the narrator, and mm-hmm. she connected the stories. And in terms of um, the Southern tradition, I've always been uh, well. My family is from, on my mother's side at least, is from North Carolina and um, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. So when I was researching uh, my mother and her history, um, that's when I found out that supposedly she had the ability to put spells on people, you know, the Southern superstition. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's how the storyline formed and developed. And... Um, the title, Dancing Under the Same Moon, um, as the characters transition, um, I envision them in their celestial home, um, basically having a party, you know, mm-hmm. loving one another, being together once again. And so that's how the title became Dancing Under the Same Moon. 
Oh yeah, I can, I can definitely see that that whole you know that mystical spiritual uh, spiritualism and being under the moon like a full moon dancing. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. So you can definitely see that. And now, the moon uh, itself has spiritual properties. You know, so uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. So you so you've done a lot of writing, but I also know that you do visual art. I mean, you're a painter. And, I mean, I, I can, I've seen that. And I know that you, I know about the insomnia because sometimes you'll say, you know, couldn't sleep, so, you know, you got, you got to doing that. Yeah. When did you pick up the brush? Actually, in the 70s. I paint, I've, you know, mm-hmm. people think that it's a relatively new phenomenon, but it's not. I've been painting since the 70s. I, I painted mur- murals. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the 70s, you know, I'm a, a militant child, so, you know, everything was African mass, which I, I'm still drawn to, yeah, uh-huh. faces and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at one time I saw myself as an artist, and my foster mother says, you know, art doesn't feed anybody. <laughs> you need to be thinking <laughs> realistically mm-hmm. uh, about what you're going to do with your life. And so... Um, I would paint to decorate my home because I couldn't afford to buy other people's art, and I've always liked pictures on the wall. And I would paint and give people paintings for Christmas or birthdays when I couldn't afford a present. And, you know, but then over the years I stopped painting because, you know, you just get caught up in life and, and then art materials are expensive, and then I became an administrator, didn't have time to paint and all of that. And so I, I was sick in early 2000 um, and um, bedridden and was bored out of my mind. And so my daughter bought me some 5 by 5 canvases and a little paint kit, not knowing that I used to paint. And she says, this, use this. This will keep you busy, and this is something you can do in the bed. And mm-hmm. so I started painting, and she said, oh, these are really cool. You know, I didn't know you you could draw. I didn't know you could do this. And I said, yeah, I've been doing it for years. And I said, remember the painting that was in your bedroom or remember the painting that was in the living room? I did that. And she's like, really? <laughs> so, uh, so that's how, and since I've been retired, you know, of course I do it. You know, I found my footing so to speak, and I do it more. I mean, that's interesting that she didn't know because your daughter is creative. I mean, you know, and she has a way with colors. And, and it's like, so I, I, you know, and I was waiting for you to tell me and, and how you and the kids would sit there and paint together and things like that. <laughs> no, and I, fact, never, I never that, did. Uh-huh. Uh, my son is also, he's a cartoonist, and mm. I always, you know, would pay for their art supplies and, mm-hmm. you know, uh run them off to their various activities, but I never, uh, you know, I may have sketched them. Sometimes in my journal, rather than write, I would draw a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, no, we had never really uh, talked about it So uh, until, you know, recently, uh, maybe about the last five years. Well, did you ever want to say, didn't you ever wonder where you got that from? You got it from me? <laughs> yeah, I did ask for that. That's it. <laughs> You know, you and your brother both draw. You didn't think where, you know, where I get, uh, where you got it from. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. so it's right. fun, yeah. Uh, that is, that's really kind of, that's, a, that's an interesting story. I mean, here she's like, oh, here, Mom, you might like to try this. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, like an artist, I mean, and you write, and, you know, when you write, you write in chapters, and, and you know, art is like you have different acts, and it seems like now you sort of, like, moved into the filmmaking. Um, and yeah, I know you said that you, you picked that up after your um, retirement. What made you, I mean, was that just like a natural extension? You were a storyteller. You had drawn and painted pictures, but you had really been a storyteller to start to then use film and use that media to capture these stories? <laughs> well, actually, um, I wanted to do a film. Um, I, I always want, well, I wanted to be, you know, this shows I was all over the place as a kid. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a doctor at one time, and then I wanted to uh, be a Broadway actress, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, um, in terms of the film, I initially wanted to do a film on long-term same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. And that came out of, um, you know, having friends and who have been together 30, 40, almost 50 years, I, I even know a couple that are, are Uh, 60-something plus years now. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to tell those stories because um, in talking to a lot of young people and seeing the actions of a lot of young people, um, it didn't seem like it was about really having solid relationships. It was more about having fun. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to show, and I wanted to show the world, too, that same-sex relationships can and do last. and so that was my initial um, idea. In approaching people, especially in that age group, um, a lot of people weren't comfortable telling their stories on film. And so I put it on the back burner. Um, and about a year later, I went to a woman-to-woman meeting. Um, mm-hmm. And I was sitting around the table, and I was listening to the the uh, young Uh, women talk, and um, they were saying that they wish that more elders would come to the meeting, and they wanted different perspectives of uh, of elders, you know, because we do have elders in our community that are active and have been active, or or I'm not going to say Kofi is an elder because she's not as old as I am, but she um, has been out there for a long time. They knew her story. Mm-hmm. Most people know her story. Um, so they wanted to hear from others. And so I told them, I told them my story while I was there. And I said, well, at, our, at your next meeting, I'm going to bring some elder women, because they were like, where are they at, you know, and I said, here, here. you know, I said, I, mm-hmm. you know, I got a lot of friends, I'll bring them to the next meeting. I just so happened to be having a dinner party that week, so as the women gathered, I said, you know, I was telling them about the group, and I says, and so how many of you are going to go with me to the meeting? Nobody wanted to go mm-hmm. to the meeting, and um so we got into that discussion, you know, well, why do they, why, what do they want? I said, well, you know, they need mentors. They want to know that they can make it, you know, they want to, and, well, we didn't have mentors, and, no, I'm not out like that, and, you know, all the excuses. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I was like, um, I, you know, I felt bad because I had told them I was going to bring these women to the meeting, and I was like, uh, 
I wasn't expecting the response I got, even from my partner. She was like, well, no, I don't want to go either. I don't want to do that. And um, so I said, well, I've got to figure out a way to get stories told. And I said, somebody wants to tell. There are some elder women out there are going to be brave enough to tell their story. So over a two-year period, um, I solicited stories, either by word of mouth or um, I ran an ad in the in the uh, paper. Um, Kofi had some elder group over to her home, and she uh, I went there and made an announcement, passed out some flyers. And um, so out of that, about 12 people, well, actually 14 people initially agreed to tell the story. And I wanted... Um, it to be uh, my initial target group was women 60 and older. I have one woman in the uh, film that at the time of the film, she was in her late 50s. Um, And um, so I, you know, went from uh, various states uh, collecting these stories. And didn't know what I was doing. My daughter was my videographer. Uh, we were going off of YouTube videos on how to make a documentary. <laughs> and uh, I, ha- I did uh, reach out to some other women who had done documentaries. You know, um, I reached out to them via email, phone calls, or whatever. Um, and many weren't readily available to help. Um, but they did direct me where I could go to film school or this, that, and the other. Um, and so we got the stories collected. Um, and then some, after I collected some of the stories, some of the women changed their minds about being on film. Um, and I am very sensitive to that. I'm not into outing people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I had to put, you know, do away with those stories. I had one woman who is 87, I think, now. She just had a birthday. And she told me, you could record my story. And she said, I want you to tell my story, but do it after I'm dead. Mm. She says, because I'm very involved in my church, and, um, you know, and she's very close to a family member. And even though they know, um, it's like they know, but it's unspoken. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so she asked me to hold on to her segment and build around it and tell her story after she's gone. Um, but that's how this, it came about. And um, so we got all the recordings done, and then I realized um, I took an editing class, and it got on my last nerve. I said, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, said I, I cannot do this. I've got all this information and now I can't edit. So I um, contacted uh, a lot of professional editing services, and I couldn't afford them. Um, and, well, let me back up, because when I told my partner that I was doing a film, she says, what do you know about doing films? And I say, I don't know anything, <laughs> but I'm going to do it. And I had received a lump sum of money uh, when I retired, and I said, can I, you know, do you have a problem with me spending this money on this film? And I said, because I can't get a grant. And she said, well, if that's what you want to do, okay. And um, so 
I ran into a coworker who was an IT person, and I asked him, I said, do you know anybody that edits films? And he said, yeah, my company does. And so um, I told him what the film was about, and I said I wanted it, I wanted it to be treated with respect and dignity, so I needed to work with someone that was an ally um, with the community. And so he, he sent me this guy um, to work with, and I guess we had about three or four meetings, and he came to me about the last meeting. He came to me, and he actually had tears in his eyes, and he says, Dr. Watson, I can't finish this. He says, causing problems between me and my wife. Mm. And he says, you know, um, we're Christians, and she says that I should not be doing this. And so I said, okay. I said, well, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be upset. Um, but I said, the problem is we had locked in a quote in terms of money. And so he says, well, I'm not going to charge you for what has been done thus far, which was very little. Um, and he says, I'll see if I can help you find someone else. So he did introduce me um, I said, do you know any women or <laughs> that are editors, you know? And he said, well, yeah, I do know one, um, but she works for a friend of mine's company. And I guess um, her contract says that she couldn't take on outside work. But he said, I will introduce you to my friend and see if he'll do it. So I had a meeting with him, very arrogant guy. He stayed on the phone the whole time he was talking to me. And he wouldn't honor the original quote. He says, I can do it, but I'm not going to do it for that. And mm. I said, well, I don't have any more money. And mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and I could say Stacy's name. So Stacy was in the meeting um, mm. at, with us at the time. And so she asked to be excused to talk to him. And so when she came back, she said, he said I could take the project on. And so she took it on. And... Um, with the uh, amount of money that I had and uh, produced it. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. that was a saving. So that was a journey. And uh -huh. uh, so it's been used as a teaching tool at colleges and universities. Um, it, I'm not good at marketing, um, and I'm definitely, definitely not good. I play on Facebook, but I'm not really a social media person. Mm -hmm. And um, so it probably hasn't reached as far as it could have reached if I did all of that. But I, the main goal was achieved. I showed it to the group, um, and I, like I said, I've shown it at colleges and universities, and we've had discussions about it. Um, out of that came um, uh, the two women that had been um, – part of the McCarthy era, so they got their stories out. I actually have um, Harriet's actual paper from her McCarthy hearing. She donated them to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it turned out, I think, to be a beautiful story. There are some technical errors in it, of course, being an independent film and a first-time film, but there, um, it's the stories that matter. And um, I even share my own coming-out story and what that was like um, for me. And so um, it, it achieved what I wanted it to achieve. 
um, I need to work on the marketing aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of getting lazy on that. Well, you know, I think it, 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 one of the things that I think that is important about it is, you know, we have to have intergenerational dialogues. I mean, and I know that young people are going through one thing and they go, but often I'll hear people talk about something that's so current today and not recognizing what people had to go through to get there. And, like, you know, I know people who, are, who have been closeted and maybe people will go like, oh, I don't understand why in this day and age, you know, but especially if you're on the other side of 50 and you've been closeted and sometimes through your career and everything, there are, there are ways of institutional homophobia that you are not only a victim of, but you're a part of because that's how you worked, that's how you got it, your pension might be tied up in. Mm-hmm. And so it's important not only to talk about that, but then in, as we go through this current period where, you know, to fight, recognize how far back the clock could be turned and what it would look like because a lot of a younger generation have had all of these freedoms and they've in their lifetime they've seen marriage equality and they've been able to be out and about and to recognize what's at stake and that's what it is but if we don't have these intergenerational dialogues and also that part of of to understand because I've talked to people and they go like, I don't understand why they didn't do this and why they didn't do that. I said, you know, it was a different time. I said, and when you've talked to people and you talk about what that time is, to understand that because that's also part of our history. Exactly. And I also I remind young people that, you know, while, you know, you have uh, people uh, that have gone through the McCarthy era, but while that was going on, you're in black skin, so you're also dealing with civil rights. So you're you've got you're fighting on all fronts, and um, so you know you really have some sheroes and heroes out here that mm-hmm. are under, that you're not recognizing, but you're complaining because they won't come out of the closet. Well, I mean, they fought more battles than you can ever imagine, you know, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it has to be some understanding and, like you say, some history and some intergenerational uh, dialogue of what people have gone through and why their responses are what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to take that, my second break here, and then we'll get back um, into our final segment. Uh, you're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown, and my guest today is Dr. Debrea Watson, and we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back. You know, I was thinking about that intergenerational and that part of the dialogue. Um, earlier this year, I went to Jim Toy, who, I mean, I think he, celebrate, he was celebrating his, like, his 88th birthday, 87th, 88th birthday. And he has lived more years than most of us as an openly gay man. And he threaded history, mm-hmm. you know, talking about the things that he had seen. He talked about... Um, 
marching with Dr. King, but then issues that, you know, he talked about McCarthyism, but then he also talked about, you know, the journeys as being a gay man. And then he sort of circled it all around and talked about how a lot of this is still going on and it wasn't enough to be, you know, just gay, that you, you had to be gay and also recognize what was happening with Black Lives Matter. That, right. uh, and that it did, and like, and the women's movement, and how a lot of things where it was before you could pick your battles, but now really we're in all the battles in that. And it was so nice to see, I mean, young people sat there like wrapped in, in, the, in like hearing this history doing that. And I think that, that that's, that's what's really so important when you do that, and also to, to see couples. I mean, I think that any young gay, lesbian couple should see your film because, you know, to see, you know, it isn't like, you know, five years and it ain't working out, you know, we split, that you that you hang in there through the ups and the downs mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and what that means. Uh, that's so important. Well, we're going to have to keep working on that. Yes. But we're coming up, we're coming into our last segment here, and I know we've talked about your books, we've talked about your films. What's on the horizon for Debrea Watson? Well, as I said, I, I do, uh, I was thinking about another, well, I'm sketching out another book, a children's book, um, and it, it deals with uh, foster care, and mm-hmm. the little girl moving from home to home and what those transitions will look like. Now, I've never written a children's book, so I'm taking some workshops um, to do that, and I am also want to do a focus group with a a group of young children that are in foster Mm -hmm. care so I can hear their voices because I'm used to writing in the adult voice. So that's on the horizon. And I also um, had an interesting conversation uh, this past, last year, last December, uh, went away with some friends on vacation, and there was discussion about our mothers um, mm-hmm. and the conflicts um, that some of us have had with our mothers. But ultimately, um, in some cases, we become our mothers. Um, and uh, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, one woman in particular who has not healed um, from some of the things that she went through with her mother. And some of the things that she was saying about her mother, I've been knowing her for years, and I see those same traits in her. And mm-hmm. so <laughs> I said she doesn't mm-hmm. even realize that she's becoming her mother. And um, so I said that would be an interesting concept to reach out to a group of women that had these complex relationships with their mothers and find out how they work through those uh, relationships or if they work through uh, mm-hmm. those relationships and to tell those stories. Because I think um, um, sometimes you're surprised, you know, because I even had a conversation with my daughter uh, last week, and she was saying that um, she, our identities were so intertwined that sometimes she felt like she was losing her own individualism um, because she works at the college and people call her, refer to her as little Dr. Watson rather than by her name. Uh-huh. And, 
<laughs> and so uh so we had that conversation and um I didn't quite know how to take it, you know. Um uh, I didn't know whether um to be hurt or angry or just accept the fact that she's trying to grow into her own self. And uh so I I just think relation mother daughter relationships are very complex even if they're good relationships. Uh they still have layers. And uh, so I thought that would be a good book to write. And I haven't did a call for submission yet. I'm still Mm -hmm. uh, working on that. But certainly um, when I flush it all out, I'll try to get 12 to 14 stories to tell. Well, yeah. You know, I understand that. And I can answer. Okay, everyone knows I look like my mother. Okay, uh-huh. and, yeah, you do. <laughs> and, I mean, and you know, and and it has. We had an unusual path to getting to the point to where we were good. Mm-hmm. But after she passed, I was telling somebody how once I I, took, I became my mother in many ways. But I know one day I was going to see my aunt, her older sister, and I was walking, looking in a doorway. And for a moment, I thought my mother was walking towards me, and my mother had been dead for a couple of years, and I was like, what? And then it hit me. That's me. Like you said, um, often you don't want to admit that you are becoming your mother, but then to embrace the good parts of it, but also the parts that are different. Mm-hmm. But um, it, I know what you mean when you find many people who, who haven't really quite worked through it, they haven't quite seen it, or they're still at that point where they're fighting those battles with their mother, and you want to say, you know, you're both women, you know, uh-huh. and, you, and you just need to find a way to work it out or to be even to be able to say to them, this is precious time, you know. Exactly. This is, you know, this is precious time that you have to come to something, you know. It doesn't mean that you have to go back in and become a little girl, but no, you have to be that woman that really you're meant to be so that she sees it. So I think that when I saw that, I said, what an interesting topic because to go through that and to experience and to be able to talk about it, there are some people who are younger who would appreciate hearing that. And there are, like you said, there are some people and it's like, you know, you guys need to work this out because this is what it is and it's okay to be your mother. And I often, I've told people, I said, I think that sometimes even when a mother isn't happy with your choices on whatever level. I mean, I can tell you, my mother had a whole whole laundry list of choices she wasn't. But in the end, how you live those choices, they can respect you being the person that you are. So I think that's just like a really great topic. And I could see you doing that, and it'd be something that, the mother and daughter would have, and then who knows, maybe the daughter would share it with her daughter and on and on, you know. Yeah, so hopefully uh, we need to talk about collaboration because I know that <laughs> you're uh, a writer and, and we don't do enough of that in the community, collaborate on projects. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's good to do your own thing, but sometimes it's good to uh, work together too. And you can reach your goals, sometimes uh, you can achieve your goals quicker or better if you have mm-hmm. some backup. So, right. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, and I mean, well, you know, I mean, you have gone from that 
you went through foster care and you know and you know that there's a part of society that if you say a child is in foster care particularly if it's an african american girl mm-hmm. they have written you off yes that's from true from the day you walk through there but you have traversed that you've been a mother you you've written you've done so many things i guess one of the things i'd like to ask you is how do you feel you have walked this intersectional pathway? How do you feel that it has influenced many of the, the, the directions you have taken where, you know, kept you going or opened another door for you? And how do you see it impacting your future work? Um, I, I believe it's taken me to unexpected places. It's opened doors for me. Um, like I said, I'm always thinking about what to do next, what's my next, uh, what do I want to achieve next. Um, it all comes to giving back. Um, it's not just about, uh, it's, it's not just about you, it's about what you can contribute to the world. What, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? Um, so that's what I think about and that's what fuels me um and that's it in a in a nutshell really mm-hmm. um but i'm always thinking of what the next step is and how to achieve that and the benefit that it's going to have well Debrea, i want to thank you so much for being on i certainly would love to collaborate with you work yet to do and i I thank you so much for being my guest here and sharing your story with me. You know I'm going to have to go and get your your novella out. You know, I mean that just sounds so fascinating. That and well, and I have and, a copy for you. So uh, okay. I'll, when we get offline, you could text me some dates that you're available, and you all can come to dinner. And of course, I'll have okay. a copy ready for you. <laughs> well, that, that, that's good. You know, because you know, I'll tell you. I mean, it, it's important, and I've struggled with that, you know, like with, I've got bits and pieces of these stories in my head, and so I, I and I love books too, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, and I look forward to seeing you sometime in the very near future. Okay, I'll wait on those dates now. <laughs> you, you will get them. You okay. Get them. Okay, well, thank you again. Okay. I hope you enjoyed hearing Dr. Watson's story as much as I did sharing it with you here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I want to thank you, our listening audience, for joining me each week. You can listen to the show by following Collections by Michelle Brown's podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. That's all for tonight. Join us next week when I will introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change that's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Good night.